You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. One of the benefits of going on leave for such a long period of time is that it has enabled me to step back from things here. Um, I find it easy to get really sucked into a very narrow vision of things when I'm in the midst of um, day-to-day ministry, but being away allowed me to kind of step back and look at things from a broader perspective, and and I'm not just like three to five years from now, but I was thinking hundreds of years from now. What is is the legacy of this church going to be hundreds of years from now? What is your legacy of ministry going to be hundreds of years from now? And Albert told you our mission is to be a community of people helping people make all of life all about Jesus. And if we can get kids to scream as we go, it's all the better, right? Like engaging little ones is a big part of that. And that's what this morning is about. These, these sessions we do a few times a year just to break up our regular Bible teaching uh, through whole books of the Bible. A few times a year we're, we're doing this equipped thing. Um, equipped series, and, uh, and today we're going to be talking about parenting. Um, but that, that mission that we have, if it's to succeed, if it's going to be successful in terms of legacy, if it's going to be true of this church a hundred years from now, then a big part of that success under God is going to come down to you and me parenting, discipling, training our kids in a gospel-centered way. That is indisputable. And now as soon as we talk about parenting, I know what's going on here. I know, I know, I know Satan pretty well. We've, we've spent a, a fair bit of time together through my life, and I know this. I know that he is the God of distraction and discouragement. So for some of you who aren't parents, and perhaps don't ever want to be parents, or were parents years and years ago, there is uh, something going on here where, where Satan's stepping in and wants to distract you. He, wants you. he wants you to think to yourself, this is not for me. And for the parents who are in the midst of parenting right now, discouragement rather than distraction is his key weapon. That, that he's hoping that, as, as we look at what the Bible wants us to do as parents, he's hoping that the result for you is guilt, right? Shame discouragement. And so the beauty of having a a message on gospel-centered parenting is that none of that stuff can exist where the gospel is preached. Distraction and discouragement disappear. Because if we love Jesus, then we're captivated by his word and his gospel. And if we love Jesus and know we've been forgiven by him, then we understand that all of our shame and guilt is covered by his blood. And so we can be free, free to engage. Now, if you're not a parent, don't plan to be a parent, or were a parent generations ago, this message is still for you because, as we know, parenting kids takes more than one or two parents in a nuclear family. We, nuclear families are super important, super duper important. God, 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 God ordered things in such a way that the nuclear family would be absolutely imperative to the well-being of a family, children, society, but it's bigger than that and it's going to take this community to raise our children to know and love Jesus. So let me just just repeat this for you, okay? I've I've written this out. 
whether or not our mission to be a community of people helping people make all of life all about Jesus, whether or not our mission is a success 100 years from now will largely depend under God on whether we raise and disciple our kids in a gospel-centred way. Now we're going to dive into Ephesians 6. You heard those four verses. We're going to look at that a little bit just to give us some biblical foundation. And then I've got ten points of practical application, just day-to-day application for you. Now, here's what you need to know. This is not a TED Talk, all right? I'm, I'm not a guru. I, I'm struggling just as much as you are with this. And if you are close enough to our family to know us well, you will know that for a fact. You will know that I am doing my best in the midst of great brokenness and sin and trying to overcome that while trying to live out the kind of life as a father that God is calling me to live. So I'm not a guru. I'm, I'm, remember, at the foot of the cross, we're all on even ground, right? All of us are receiving this morning. I happen to start receiving on Monday. We're all receiving from God's word this morning. I hope that goes without saying, but I think it's probably worthwhile, all right? So here's, here's some context for us as we get to Ephesians. Remember, Ephesians, the big idea of Ephesians is that Jesus is Lord over all. That's, that's the one-sentence summary. Jesus is Lord over all. The first three chapters make that point emphatically. Jesus is Lord over all. The next three chapters are application. Jesus is Lord, now let's live like that, okay? And so the, the idea that Paul has is really an idea that encapsulates the whole Bible story. God creates order and beauty out of chaos, Genesis 1, right? There is chaos and God brings about order and beauty in his creation, Two chapters later, that is fractured, broken, set off rhythm by the, the chaos that the serpent brings. It's interesting, throughout cultures around the world, the serpent is always a, a symbol of chaos. And that's what Satan did. He, he, he took God's beautiful, ordered creation and sent it into chaos through the sin of Adam and Eve. And since then, we have been trying to take what is a beautiful world made chaotic and bring it back into harmony and order. That's what Jesus' triumph on the cross achieved and will ultimately have its fulfillment in the new creation where all order and beauty will be set right. Okay, so now we live in this in-between time. Jesus has won the battle, but the world is still chaotic. The world is groaning. You probably saw last week in Romans 8. The world is groaning. Creation is groaning, waiting for Jesus to set it right again. It remembers what it was like. And so the the second half of the book of Ephesians is really Paul saying, here's how to establish in the midst of thorns and thistles and chaos and family marriage breakdowns. And in the midst of all of that, here's how we can, with God, establish order in God's creation, in our relationships. So let's have a little look at it, all right? First of all, verse 1 of chapter 6, every kid's life verse. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Another way of saying that is this is ordered. This is beautiful. It's beautiful. It works when 
children obey their parents in the Lord. Just before, in the chapter before, in Ephesians chapter 5, right, this is what he says about what it means to be filled with the Spirit. He says, don't get drunk on wine, which, which leads to deport, debauchery. Right? Don't get drunk because it leads back to chaos. It leads back to the serpent. Don't get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery, and don't get out of it by saying, well, I only drink whiskey. That's not what he means. All right? Instead, be filled with the Spirit, capital S, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Next verse, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. What he's doing is introducing the whole next section that we're going to look a little part of. He's introducing a section where he's going to talk about who needs to submit to who. How does this submission to authority work in such a way that it reinstates God's peace and, and shalom in the world in the midst of chaos? And so he says, what it means to be filled with the Spirit is to appropriate, appropriately submit to God and his established order. Sometimes we think, oh, people who are filled with the Spirit are spontaneous and crazy and, 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 and they're singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, but yeah, that's being filled with the Spirit. But actually, yes, it is that, and it's order. It's rhythm. That's what it means to be filled with the Spirit. It's, it's spiritual songs and submission to authority. And he says throughout Ephesians, right? In Ephesians 1.22, the church submits to Jesus. We all get that. We're all on board with that. Next one, less popular, 5.22, wives submit to husbands. Third one, 6 verse 1, children submit to parents. And he'll go on to talk about slaves submitting to masters as well. So he says all of this exists in order to bring God's beautiful order and peace and shalom into the midst of a chaotic world that's gone off the rails. So he says, children, obey your parents in the Lord. Now this is something you need to get straight from the beginning. Since we've opened up a little bit of a can of worms with the submission to authority thing, in all of those categories of submission... We need to understand this point, that it is obedience in the Lord. He says the same thing to wives and submitting to their husbands. It needs to be in the Lord. This is, a, this is the safety valve, right, on that potentially dangerous situation that God pointed out in Genesis 3. He knew that this was potentially dangerous to have a man have authority over his family because men can be mongrels. They have potential to be very, very dangerous. And so that's why Paul says and echoes God's own words that they are to exercise this authority and this submission in the Lord. Obedience of children to parents precludes obedience to abuse. There's no place for it in God's created order. That's obvious, but we need to know that, and your kids need to know that. So parents need to ask the question, 
when we're disciplining, well, first of all, are we disciplining our kids? That's not a given. When we realize that God is calling us to discipline our kids and we start disciplining them, or when we continue to discipline them, are we disciplining them in the Lord? That's a very important question. How do you answer that question? What does it look like to discipline in the Lord? Well, writer to the Hebrews talks about God's own discipline. So if we're going to be like our Heavenly Father, let's, let's, let's aim for that. Let's not default to doing, well, my parents did it this way. Your parents were dumb, all right, in so many ways. If you haven't come to that conclusion, now is your chance, all right? You just need to embrace that. Every parent is dumb, or at least insufficient, or mistaken, or sinful, right? So we look to our perfect heavenly Father, and in Hebrews 12, this is what the writer says about God's discipline. He says, we've all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of spirits and live? He's made the same distinction, right? Earthly fathers, they're doing their best. How much more a perfectly heavenly father? See, they, the earthly fathers, disciplined us for a little while as they thought best. But God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his Holiness, is your discipline of your children for their good or because you're frustrated? And it's the tenth time today. I've got so much to go through, I just have to keep skipping over this. Last night I went, um, Renee organised family fun night at an um, arcade. And I, my favourite game is the basketball thing, right? Where you just got to hit as many shots as you can in a minute. That's what this is this morning, all right? I'm just going to try and get as many shots in and then leave it to the Holy Spirit. All right. Let me say this to myself, if for no one else's benefit. If you are angry then you are disqualified from dis- disciplining your kids. Just make that a rule. Okay, that's the 11th commandment. If you are angry, you are disqualified. So, here's what I know. You are angry a lot if you're like me and you've got kids like mine. You are ang- you've got cause to be angry, frustrated, whatever word fits you, right? If you are angry, you're disqualified. So stop. Breathe. Take a minute or ten and then do it. I know all of the books say you've got to do it in the moment, otherwise the kid won't get it. Not if you're angry. If you're angry, you're disqualified. So stop. Requalify yourself. Compose yourself. And then do the discipline thing. Oh, we've got to keep going. Verse 2. Honour your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you, you may enjoy long life on the earth. So first, he's quoting Exodus 20, right? God's commandment, one of the ten. Kids, obey your parents. If you do it, here's what I'm going to do for you. You're going to live long in the land. Now, Paul has modified that, right? Moses is speaking to the people of Israel and specifically referring to the land of Israel that they were going to inherit. 
And that inheritance was based on their obedience to a degree. And so that's why that commandment makes sense in that context. Here he modifies it for us, all right? Here he says, so that you may, it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth, the land in general, not Israel. You don't need to go and move there in order to have a good, obedient kids, all right? He's talking about in general, on the earth. And the point isn't that we're guaranteed long life if we obey our parents. That's manifestly untrue, right? Obedient kids die young. God save us. But what he's outlining for us is a principle that is one of the, one of the foundations of good society, of civilization itself. We have no idea how much of this civilization that we have, which is amazing in the context of history, is down to it being built on biblical principles. We have no idea. Even the Christians don't. But it's true. A large chunk of our prosperity and peace is down to us actually instituting some of these things. So it's not a guarantee of your kid's long life, but it is a fundamental principle of of reinstituting God's order and good, um, good governance of society. So this, John Stott said it like this about Ephesians 6.2. He says, probably we should interpret this in general rather than individual terms. Then what is promised is not so much long life to each child who obeys his parents as social stability to any community in which children honour their parents. Certainly a healthy society is inconceivable without a strong family life. Now, that is true, and that is heavily doubted in the communities that we live in. Because here's what's happening. All the people who doubt that that's true are still living on the benefits of all the people who thought that it was. Right? So all, all, all of the people who doubt that family life is, is, is essential for healthy society and want to get rid of healthy families are still living on the inheritance of the people who did think it was important. That's why they don't get it. Unfortunately, the only way to prove that point is to go 100 years down the track and see what we're left with. But strong family life is essential to good, healthy community. Now, I, I, um, I'm aware that in this room there are a lot of broken families, right? I myself grew up most of my life, 20, 30 years now, with one parent in our family, right? So I, I totally get that. And here's why the church is so important. Because don't believe what they tell you, there is a price to be paid, for single-parent families. You do lose something by not having a mum and a dad. You do. Like, uh, and that's not, I'm not making a moral judgment. That is established empirical fact. Kids do better in just about every measurable test if they've had mum and dad healthy at home. So I, I'm the product of something different to that, and many of you are, and many of you are labouring in those circumstances. Here's why it's so important that we're a healthy community church, because we can step in. There are kids in our church desperate for mummies and daddies, and you can be that. 
even if you've never had kids yourself. That was a tangent, but I feel like that's important. What was I going? I was ranting, that's right. People don't believe that this is true. There's a big um, prize for educationalists in, the, in New York City. It's called the Big Apple Prize for Education. And in the late 90s, the, the prestigious award went to a guy who wrote this. Never tell a child what to do. Never say no to a child. Never punish a child. And that is not a fringe thought. That's commonplace today, right? That was late 90s, maybe a bit fringe, maybe out there, enough to win an award. You've got to do weird things to get awards, right? But now, much more commonplace. And I just find a teacher from our congregation after church today, grab a coffee and ask them, how is that going for them in the classroom? Right, that sentiment might have won the Big Apple Award, but we're eating the rotten fruit of that right now. It's a little pun there for free, all right? Paul says this to Timothy, right? In 2 Timothy 3, this is what he says about the last days, right? He says, mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good. He goes on and on and on. And he marks out there two things for us, abusive and disobedient to their parents. Both of those things need to be dealt with if we're going to be gospel-centred parents. And so, as with so many areas of life, and we've talked about some of these things in the last year, some of these controversial things, but as with so many areas of life, we as a community at this Red Door Church, we are called to be different in a really attractive way. To be different, to be the kind of place where families can thrive and flourish so that there's, there's this thing that Jesus called the city on the hill, right? The light that isn't covered up but shines forth among the community and gives hope. Not just hope, but a model of how life can be done. Let's keep going. Verse 4. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. He says fathers. He's not discounting mums. Um, here's, here's what's going on. It's not just that this is a patriarchal society. I just think Paul knows fathers are really prone to fail. Fathers are really prone to fail being husbands and fathers. Prone. Just like Adam was, he was the first one to do it. We've just been lining up after him. And Paul wants us to line up after Jesus, but he knows we're prone to fall back to Adamic ways. And it happens in, as far as our husbands go. He mentions this in Ephesians 5. It happens as far as being fathers. He mentions that in Ephesians 6. He knows that in both being husbands and fathers, we are prone to either be overbearing or acquiescent. That's a fact. And men, husbands, fathers tend to go to one of those extremes. Overbearing, acquiescent. Aggressive or passive. And so he says to them, 
Do not exasperate your children. This is amazing, by the way. In this culture, you could do what you want to your children. There is no DHS knocking on your door. You can do whatever you want. And to, your, to wives, for that matter. This is, this is almost unparalleled in the first century that someone would write this. But he says, fathers, listen, don't exasperate your kids. Instead of that, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. So you see both of those things there. Don't be aggressive. Don't be passive. Don't be overbearing. Don't be acquiescent. Don't provoke them and exasperate them, but don't just let them go either. Make sure that you bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. That's how we get beauty and order and shalom in the world. Fathers have a big responsibility here. And we've got hundreds of years to point to of history where this was almost entirely let go. To bring up your children in the training and instruction of the Lord. The, bring, the word bring up is actually the word nourish. He uses it of husbands with their wives as well. Same word, nourish. Just think about what it takes to nourish, I don't know, a plant. I've never had a plant that I didn't kill. But I imagine it takes investment of, what's that stuff called? that you Fertilizer, right? It takes, you've got to put in. I think one of the reasons that fathers don't do this, one of the reasons we don't feed to nourish is because we haven't been fed ourselves. If you're a starving man, you're not going to do much good feeding your own kids. So feed yourself and feed your kids. Ten ways to love the child that God has given you. Man, I've got no time. All right, I'm, just, I'm shooting hoops, all right? Ten ways. Number one, eagerly, humbly submit to God. Number one, top of the tree, eagerly, humbly submit to God. When you are disciplining your children, they need to know that you are being disciplined yourself. When you're asking children to respect your authority, they need to know that you respect the authority of the one who owns you, the one who is your father. You are not your own, you were bought with a price. Therefore, we need to demonstrate that clearly, clearly to our kids. Someone, listen to this, this is your tweetable moment, all right? Someone who exerts authority without humility is a tyrant and a bully, not someone to be respected or obeyed. Someone who exerts authority without Humility is a tyrant and a bully, not a daddy, not a mummy. So humble yourself first before God, then you'll be equipped to lead your kids well. Number two, don't pigeonhole your children. Oh, all of these are hitting me right here. I've got to remember, saved by grace. All right, number two, don't pigeonhole your children. Don't attempt to shove your kids into a mold hoping that they'll fulfill all of your untapped potential. Don't try and shove them into a mold that society has erected for them that may not have anything to do with what God has designed them for. 
There is a mold, and it's shaped like Jesus. It's, it's not shaped like the kid on the billboard out the front of your school who got 99.7 or whatever it is these days, right? It's not, it's not shaped like that kid. It's shaped like Jesus. God cares far more about your children's faith and well-being than he does about their grades or anything else. So is that your priority? Or you're like, oh, well, God's got that priority, so I'll keep the maths priority. No. You're called to follow and be like him. This is huge, by the way. This is, this is, this is, so, so right now you're either hardening your heart because this is too painful and it's too convicting, or you're going to let yourself be open to God by his spirit instructing you and pointing you in a better direction. It's, it's up to you. Number three, discipline biblically. When you discipline your kid, make sure it has a biblical category. A godly parent can't discipline for being annoying or for making a mess or for squirming or for making noise in church. No one in this church who is paid by this church or is under my authority will ever shush your kid for making a noise in church. I I promise you. And if they do, you just come straight to me and we'll have a chat. We do not discipline kids for being kids, making noise, crying, falling over, making a mess. We discipline kids according to biblical categories. You can discipline kids for stuff you have support in Scripture, right? Like disobedience, lying. Go to Proverbs, go to the Psalms, go to Ephesians. Align your discipline with God's discipline. Align your priorities with his priorities. Let me say it again. You can't discipline your kid for being annoying. Imagine if God disciplined you for being annoying. Yeah. I'll say it again. If you're angry, you're not qualified. So stop, breathe, recalibrate. Number four, I hope you're, I'm sure you're writing all of this down. Set clear expectations. Expecting obedience, hey, this, is, this seems so obvious. I'm not sure it is. Expecting obedience from our children assumes that they know what they're meant to be obeying. So if you expect obedience, you need to know for sure that they know what that looks like. Otherwise, it's the blind leading the blind. All right? So just make sure you communicate it clearly. Explain to your children in advance what you expect from them and what they can expect from you. So here's what I expect from you, and here's what you can expect from me in these sets of circumstances. That means they can trust you when you discipline them. One of the worst, most damaging things a child can experience throughout their life is the, an unexpected, chaotic response from their parents. What's going to happen this time? Is it going to be the belt or just his tongue, right? Am I going to get grounded for a year because he's had a bad day or is it I'm going to get let off? Like, that uncertainty kills a kid. 
So let's be really clear. Here's what I expect from you. Here's what you can expect from me. Give the kids some expectations of you. We've tried to establish some kind of recognisable pattern in our words so that that our kids know this is what's happening now. They could probably recite it word for word. But it goes something like this. Sweetheart, you know what mummy said to you and you did not obey mummy. Here's the consequence. You know that I'm not angry, right? You can see I'm not angry. That would disqualify me. You know I'm not angry, but you must learn to obey mummy and daddy. There's a a settled rhythm to that that kids can learn and accept. It doesn't get them off the hook, but it doesn't make them frightened either. That's followed by an apology from them, asking for forgiveness. That's really important. That's what God models for us in our relationship to him. We ask for forgiveness. We confess. We receive absolution from him. That's important for you as a parent. Give your child that absolution. Thank you for saying sorry. Mummy loves you. Mummy forgives you. Let's, Let's start again. Let's start afresh. Number five, recognize obedience. How easy it is just to be sucked into focusing on disobedience and not recognizing obedience, just making that par for the course. No, no, let's, what, listen, what gets rewarded gets repeated. That's true of just about all animals in God's creation, including us, right? What gets rewarded gets repeated. So reward obedience. Tell them. It's amazing. I'm so glad that you did that. We've been talking about that and I, I just saw you do that. Well done. But don't let them think that their obedience and good works is what earns them your love. Number six, spend quality time together. And I want to say, and you can accuse me and Paul of being sexist, but I want to say especially dad. We need to, we need to overcome hundreds of years of history on this. Especially dad. Some new research recently coming out on the effect that um, intentional, regular contact between father and and kids does for kids' well-being is astonishing. Particularly, and interestingly, when it comes to um, self-control and delayed gratification. And they've broken it down even down to uh, uh, the idea of wrestling. Dad's wrestling with kids. For whatever reason, you can read the research and tell me, whatever reason, encourages children to learn delayed gratification. It also helps them to learn rules for life and what rules to respect and how to respect them. Heaps. You can do a lot by wrestling with your kids. It doesn't have to all be arithmetic, all right? You can wrestle for their good. And and this requires investment. This requires dads not to work 70 hours a week. It does. You've got to choose to cheat someone. You can cheat your corporate ladder and your boss and your money, or you can cheat your kids. You've got to choose one. Again, it's totally up to you. Kids will not forget meaningful one-to-one time. I think especially with their daddies. Let me read you. A 19th century American politician named Charles Francis Adams kept a diary. Famous politician. American politics. 
On one day he wrote, went fishing with my son today, day wasted. And on that same date, Charles' son, his, his son Brooks, noted in his own diary, went fishing with my father today, the most wonderful day of my life. I find that very moving and, and sad. Devastating. Don't be that dad. I'm sure he was a great politician. He's in all the history books. Who cares? Snuggle, wrestle, invest yourself. Right? In verse 4 where it says instruct, it means to pour into. You are a you, you are a bottle of fertilizer to be poured into your children. I was going to talk to you about how Jesus spent time with children and rebuked his disciples for trying to keep them away, but we don't have time. Number seven, don't change your behavior towards your children in public. Don't correct your, your kids for things that you don't normally correct them for, but just because you're in public and you're worried about what people will think, then suddenly you're a different parent. Don't do that. Again, this is about them being able to trust you, who you are. Public, private, you need to be the same parent. Like we all know the pressure. It's in the supermarket. There's, there happens to be 10,000 people there all of a sudden in the same aisle just looking at your kid, and so you've got all this pressure to yell at them for doing something that you wouldn't yell at them for doing if you were at home. That's not good. So don't change who you are just because people are watching. Number eight, don't take your children's sins as a personal insult. Oh, they can really hurt those kids, can't they? No, just me? You guys are liars. Don't take it as a personal insult. You know, when I did youth ministry, I can't tell you how many times I would speak to kids who would say, yeah, mum's not talking to me at the moment because I, I don't know, broke a vase or something. Don't use your relationship as the basis for your discipline, right? As a consequence. You did this, so now I'm not your friend. That's terrible. We've all done terrible things. Just stop doing them. Don't leverage obedience by withholding or giving love. Don't be mad at your kids. Recognize that they are a work in progress just like you. We've got to pray for them. It's the spirit that will change them, not our meager disciplinary decisions. Number nine, regularly ask for forgiveness. My experience of you and my own experience is that not many of us had parents that asked for forgiveness from us as children. Not many of us had parents who would come to us and say, I was wrong. If that's true and that's common, that's a problem. I think the person, the kid, the people that I apologize to most of all after Renee are my kids. We have to constantly, constantly be 
asking for their forgiveness, highlighting our insufficiency so that they can see God the Father is the perfect parent, not us. So that when we ask for their apology, for their repentance, we're not asking them for something that we don't ourselves give. Model repentance for them. Let them know that you need the gospel just as much as they do, probably more. Number 10, then I'm going to pray. Forgive them and then move on. We've got this wrong, right? Most of us have got this wrong in our marital relationships, right? It's um, like, oh, sweetie, I'm really sorry that I did that thing that I did. Do you want to say something? No. Let's not make conditional apologies. Let's not give conditional forgiveness. We need to forgive and move on. Why? Because this is what God does for us. He takes scarlet rags and washes them white as snow. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our sins from us. God, even the omniscient God, forgets our transgressions. So how can we carry them around with us and then pull them out to be used for ammo or, or, or leverage in times to come? This is the most important thing. When they've done it for the fifth time that day, you respond to the degree of five when you should respond as if it's the first time. Why? Because forgiveness has taken place and we all go back to the foot of the cross. This is a good place for us to finish, not just because I've used up my time, but because... Every time we talk about a lot of these things, money, parenting, sex, I don't know, you name it, a lot of these practical things, the the outcome for some of us is guilt and shame. And so what we need to remember is that we forgive and move on because that is exactly what God has done with us. All of those mistakes you've made, even the really, really big ones, just think about it the really big ones. All of those, not just mistakes, but those sins, those sins have been placed on the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ and Jesus said himself, it is finished. Those sins have been forgiven. You've been washed white as snow. So now that we've been challenged and convicted, as well as being assured of God's love and forgiveness, let's put all of this before him. I have no power to make any of this come about in my own life, let alone yours or this church. We must have God's help, so let's pray and ask. Father, we need you. We need you because being a parent is hard, so hard. And being a parent who parents like you, our Heavenly Father, is way beyond impossible. So I thank you and praise you that you are the God of the impossible, that all things are possible through you as you strengthen us. I pray that for each 
individual nuclear family in our church that your spirit would be at work strengthening us. If any of what I've said is true and good and profitable and holy, I pray that it would grow in us and grow afresh. And I pray that this church would be like a a greenhouse that accelerates that growth and nurtures that growth and nourishes that growth so that in a hundred years, all of these kids who are precious in your sight would be making all of life all about Jesus. And it's it's in his name that we pray. Amen.